Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. I'm your guest host, Malena. And I'm your host, Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys part one of the Ashland tragedy. So grab yourself an iced coffee and let's get into it. I just want to give a quick disclaimer before we jump into this episode. If you are familiar with the Ashland tragedy of 1881, then you are probably familiar with how graphic this story can get. It does involve crimes against young children aged between 14 and 17, and the crimes do include rape. So if this is not something that you are able to listen to, then I would go ahead and skip it. When we get into the part where we talk about the crime in detail, I will give a heads up. And if you would like to just skip that part, then you can. In Ashland, Kentucky, a really small town, on December 23rd, 1881, Franny and Robert Gibbons, Franny was 14 and Robert was 17, were at their house with their friend Emma Thomas. And Emma also had a different last name. This was her stepfather's last name. So she also went by Emma Carrico, and she was 15. Emma lived with her family across the street from the Gibbons house, and this evening, Martha Gibbons, which was Robert and Franny's mother, had asked her to come over and just stay the night and hang out with the kids to give them some company because she was going to be taking her youngest son, Sterling, who was only 11, to visit family in Ohio that evening. And since their father, John, was out of town for work, he was out of the state, actually, she wanted somebody to be there with them just to kind of hang out. On December 24th, 1881, so this would have been Christmas Eve, around 4 a.m., Emma's mom woke up to start doing some work around the house, and she glanced out the window and saw the Gibbons home, and it was dark, and so she's just like, okay, the children are still sleeping, that's fine. And then a couple hours later, so this would have been around 6 o'clock, she looked back at the house and noticed there was a light flickering in the window, and she wasn't sure what it was at first, but she just kept watching it, and then it dawned on her what the light was. And she ran out of her house screaming, fire, fire, help. And it was very clear that a fire had been started in the house and the children were still inside. The town sounded the fire alarm. All the neighbors came out to help. This was 1881. It was a little bit different than what we'd see now. I mean, it wasn't a big fire department that was called. The fire department was just the town themselves. So there were people that knew there were three children inside the house and they all ran inside into the fire to bring the children out. And when they get in there, they are able to bring out all three of the children. However, their heads had been smashed in. That definitely seems like it's a little bit more than just a fire. I mean, a fire doesn't happen just suddenly cause you to have your head bashed in. The townspeople called for the doctors and the doctors came to the scene. And when they got there, they were able to determine that the children had actually died from their skulls being crushed and they were dead prior to this fire being started. They also did further examination and discovered that Emma and Franny had been brutally raped as well. They believed that the fire had been started to basically cover up the crime and get rid of any sort of evidence. Later that morning, so they had to wait for the sun to rise before they could do a whole lot because it was 1881. They didn't have all these streetlights and everything that we have nowadays. And they were able to go in and do some searching for some evidence. And they gathered the bloody sheets, the pillows, and just kept walking throughout the house. And they found an axe and a crowbar. And both of the weapons were covered in blood and hair, so they were believed to have been the weapons that had been used to commit the murders. 
A few days later, on December 26, 1881, there was a service held for the teens at the local Methodist church. There were so many people that showed up to this service that there were people that had to wait outside because the church did not have the capacity to hold the amount of people that had shown up. That's a lot of people. It sounds like the entire town basically was there. This was a really small town and it was a close-knit community, so the fact that something like this had happened in their small town kind of really shook everyone and they were all completely shocked and a little scared about what was happening in their community because it was unlike anything they'd ever experienced before. And maybe the murderer was at the funeral. They might have been. That is something that happens a lot where the murderer will sometimes appear at the funeral out of some sort of remorse. We'll go into that a little bit further later on. After the service, the mayor, whose name was John Means, had arranged a town meeting and at this town meeting he was basically asking for any sort of donations from the townspeople so that they could get a good amount around so that they could offer a reward for any evidence that could lead to finding the murderer and he also wanted to use this money to help pay for a detective as in the 1880s there were not detectives in like every state or every city so they had to bring some people from outside of the town to come help And in just a few days, they ended up collecting over $1,000, which in today's money would be a little bit over $25,000. With this money, they were able to offer a reward for that $1,000. And with the leftover money, they were able to hire multiple detectives from multiple states. The first detective I'm going to tell you about is Detective J.B. Norris, and he was from Ohio, and he comes into town and he does his detective work, I guess, if that's what you want to call it. And he basically is just immediately like, I have a theory. I know who killed them. And he goes, the kid's father, John Gibbons, is the one that murdered the three children. Which it's not uncommon that family members are the perpetrators. That is true. But if you remember correctly from what I said earlier on, he was in another state at the time of the murders. But was he really? Well, it it makes it a little bit harder because it was in 1881, so they didn't have like a plane to just fly back and forth. So the main method of transportation at this time would have been trains. And so it would have been kind of hard for him to be there so quickly and then be out of town so quickly. Melina, I know you weren't on this episode that Abby and I covered, but we covered one about the Velisca Axe murders, which was in 1912. And one of the theories was that it was somebody that came from out of town to kill this family and then immediately hopped on a train and quickly left town. So I guess maybe it's possible. It just didn't seem right that it would have been him, especially with how brutal the murders were and the fact that his daughter and their friend was raped. However, media is media and it's not changed a whole lot since the 1880s and the newspapers got wind of this and reporters immediately had it everywhere. It was in every newspaper. There were wanted posters for John everywhere. Everyone wanted to arrest him. But there was another detective that was there at the time, and it was Detective U.S. Marshal Heflin, and he said that he didn't believe that the father had done it. He also said that it had to have been more than one person to be able to subdue all three children. But because of the accusations that had been made against John from Detective Norris's theory, U.S. Marshal Heflin realized that he would need to clear John's name first before he would be able to really investigate anything else or before anybody else would believe the possibility of there being another murderer. So on December 31st, 1881, U.S. Marshal Heflin had been able to find John Gibbons, who was in a remote area in West Virginia where he had been working. When U.S. Marshal Heflin 
found John, John was still unaware of what had happened to his children. He had not been given word yet. I understand this was definitely a way different time because it was so long ago, but that would suck not knowing that your own child had passed away in such a brutal way, especially. Absolutely. I don't think it was an easy time, but this meant that U.S. Marshal Heflin had to not only let John know that his children had been brutally murdered, but also let him know that he was the main suspect and people were looking out for him in order to arrest him. However, U.S. Marshal Heflin was able to do some research and investigative work, and he was able to determine that John had been in West Virginia working the whole time, and he had not left the state, making him not the killer. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. After U.S. Marshal Heflin had been able to determine that John was not, in fact, the killer, Detective Norris pretty quickly left town because I think he was a little bit ashamed of the fact that he had just so quickly accused the father and then he did it without any evidence. I feel like I would want to leave too because that would be embarrassing for me if I was the detective and I just made all of these accusations against a man who just lost his son and daughter. Yeah, and I think he recognized that and that was why he left town so quickly. This did send the whole town back to kind of being in a little bit of a panic because now they're trying to figure out who had committed this horrible crime and they were back to square one where the killer was still on the loose and they didn't know what was going to happen. Plus, there's still that possibility that it was someone in their town and, you know, who's who's going to be next. There was a member of the town whose name was Mr. Powell, and I could not come across his first name. And he worked at the general store. And one day, shortly after the murders had occurred, there was a regular whose name was George Ellis. And he came into the store to buy a cigar And Mr. Powell was speaking with George and said something along the lines of, well, now that old man Gibbons is in the clear, I wonder who it is going to fall on now. And Mr. Powell said that as soon as he made this comment, George looked very startled and he wouldn't even look at Mr. Powell anymore. That's suspicious. It gets weirder because after Mr. Powell says this and George kind of looks a little off and acts a little funny, he says to Mr. Powell that he might know who did it and then said something about quote-unquote state's evidence and then runs out of the general store. Now that is even more suspicious. Yeah, it's not making him look very good. A few hours later, George Ellis walks into the hotel that U.S. Marshal Heflin is staying at and U.S. Marshal Heflin had already kind of been tipped off by Mr. Powell about the incident that had occurred at the general store. And when George Ellis comes in there, he tells U.S. Marshal Heflin that he knows something about the murders. George took a seat and then asks U.S. Marshal Heflin if he can explain to him what state's evidence means. Because he mumbled it back at the general store, but he apparently didn't know the meaning of it. So U.S. Marshal Heflin tells him that basically this means if someone was guilty of a crime and they told on the other people that were involved, the informant would probably get a lesser sentence, which we know that nowadays, but George Ellis was curious about what that meant. 
So this part is going to be the more in-depth and a little bit brutal. This is the exact statement that George Ellis gives to Marshall Heflin. So if you guys want to skip past this, then you guys can skip forward probably about a minute, minute and a half, and you guys will be past this part. George Ellis gave his confession and said, quote, a few evenings prior to the 24th, I met Ellis Craft, who stated that he was going to see Fanny Gibbons and take her some black candy, and that he was going to have intercourse with her, and he wanted me to come along. About midnight, the fatal night, we all started Ellis Craft. William Neal and myself, and when we got to the house, Ellis Craft raised the window with an old axe and stepped in first. William followed, and I stayed behind on the porch, and afterwards I went in. Robbie was the first to wake and started to get up when Ellis Craft said, You had better lie still. Ellis Craft then went to the bed where the two girls were sleeping and began to take improper liberties with them. Robbie said, You had better stay away from there when Ellis Craft hit him with the axe. He fell back on the lounge, then plunged forward and fell fully six feet from the bed under the stairs where he was found. The girls screamed when Ellis Craft jumped on the bed and they both said, Ellis Craft, what are you here for? Emma also started to jump from the bed when William Neal choked her and pulled her onto the floor. She fought him and I held her while he outraged her. William then struck her on the head with the big end of the crowbar and she instantly died from throwing up her hands. Ellis Craft also had some trouble with Fanny Gibbons and called on me to come and help him. He then outraged her and killed her. William Neal proposed killing the girls and after they were dead, I took some coal oil, poured it over their bodies, and set fire to them with a match. We then left the house. End quote. That is intense. I can't imagine just kind of standing there and just helping as all of that happened. That sounds extremely brutal and horrifying, honestly. I think that we can all agree that what happened to those children is absolutely horrific. The good thing is George Ellis did feel some sort of remorse and he was able to come forward and make this confession. He also said that in the months before the murders, his friends had been watching the girls and had been kind of stalking them out with the plans to rape them. I'm not sure what turned the rape into murdering them and the brother. I don't know if they were just a little startled and they didn't know what to do and they decided that that was the route that they were going to go. I feel like with them bringing an axe and a crowbar, the crowbar I kind of understand to, you know, get in the window, but I feel like the axe, they had to have expected this outcome in some way if they were prepared and if they had brought an axe with them. They actually did not bring the axe and the crowbar with them. They picked that up from the house when they arrived. With George's confession, both William Neal and Ellis Craft were arrested, and all three of them were transported to the county jail in Cattlesburg, which was about five miles away from Ashland. For whatever reason, all three prisoners were put in the same cell, which is really strange to put especially three conspiring criminals in one cell. I think it's a little strange that that's the route that they went, but that's what they did. The first thing the next morning, George Ellis was trying to recant his confession, and he kept saying that it wasn't true, but everybody was like, it's too late. You already made this confession. You gave full details that match the scene of the crime. You're not able to back out of this. I'm assuming the reason that he wanted to change his story was because he was in a jail cell with William Neal and Ellis Craft, and so they told him that night, you need to tell everybody that we didn't do it because otherwise XYZ, whether they threatened his life or they threatened to somehow try to turn it on him. I feel like he somehow felt threatened and felt like he needed to switch up his story to make it seem like they were innocent. 
word spread throughout Ashland that the killers had been arrested and they were in jail and police officials felt like the only way that they would ever be able to get these guys to trial is if they protected them because they were so concerned for the safety of these men that they were afraid somebody would try to murder them prior to the trial. So the court, because of this fear, they ended up ordering the prisoners to be moved to a more secure jail in Lexington. So they were actually escorted by armed guards and they were put on the Catlettsburg Ferry and headed down the river to Lexington. But the townspeople found out about this transfer and so they got on a steamboat so that they could try and catch up with the ferry. Luckily, the ferry was able to speed fast enough that they were able to get rid of the steamboat and nothing ended up occurring but these townspeople were so angry with these men for what they did to these children that they were trying to track them down to just murder them so do we know the ages of these men i am unsure of their age i was not able to find that in my research a lot of stuff from the 1800s is kind of hard to find and dig up because there's not a whole lot that was necessarily saved back then The ferry that was taking the three men from Catlettsburg to Lexington made a stop in Vanceburg, Kentucky, and there they allowed reporters to board the ferry and interview the prisoners. William Neal and Ellis Craft the entire time were joking and singing, but they told reporters they had nothing to do with the crime and that they were innocent. At this point in time that they were on the ferry, police officers had made a smart decision and George Ellis was now being held in a separate cell. They were keeping the two away from George. And I think part of this might have been for his protection and because they knew they needed his confession still. And if he wanted to recant his confession too much, then they might lose part of their case. And if he was going to be locked up with these two men that he was kind of ratting out, I guess, then they might try to influence him to say something different. Or they also might find a way to try to harm him if he doesn't change his previous statement. Yes, that's extremely possible. Once they're in the Lexington jail, George Ellis comes forward and he's like, I did not say that. I was forced to say it. It's not actually what happened. We're all innocent. And he claimed that U.S. Marshal Heflin had held him at gunpoint and forced him to make this confession. On January 16th, 1882, the trial for William Neal started first with presiding Judge George N. Brown. And at this time, George Ellis had already been charged with the murder of Emma Carico or Emma Thomas. Most of the evidence that was presented was from witnesses. And one woman said that in the early morning of Christmas Eve, she saw George Ellis, Ellis Craft, and William Neal walking about a half a mile from the murder scene. Other witnesses testified that after the murders, William Neal was really uneasy whenever they brought up the murders, and he told people that he was worried someone would suspect him as being the killer. One of the men who helped pull the bodies from the burning house also said that he saw William Neal standing about 50 feet from the fire, and he was just watching. The next person that took the stand during William Neal's trial was George Ellis, and This is him telling his account of the story for what happened that night. And he was very calm and appeared to be telling the truth. So this is his exact quote from the trial. Parts of this is a little graphic again. So if you guys want to skip this part as well, you can. Part of it is some of his background. I do think it's kind of cool that even though this happened so long ago, that we can still find all of the direct quotes and stuff. A lot of trial records are still able to be found and all of the court documents, sometimes it's hard to find, but with a lot of digging, you can find some of the court documents. So 
This is his exact quote. I have resided in Ashland since May, have been engaged as a laborer at Powell and House's Brickyard most of the time. I am acquainted with the prisoner Neil, also with Kraft. We three worked together at the Brickyard. I did not see either of them during the day on December 23rd. I saw them later that night. They came to my house and called me. I was in bed and asked what they wanted. Kraft told me to get up. They wanted to see me. I did so, put on my clothes and boots, and went out to the gate. Kraft said, you must go with us. I asked him where. He said to the Gibbons, and we will have some fun. I told him, no, it was too late. I won't go. They said I had to go, and Kraft drew his revolver. Neil said, bring him along, and we started. When we got inside the gate at the Gibbons, Kraft picked up an axe, and Neil got a crowbar from under the porch floor. Kraft pried open the window, and Neil was the first to go in. Kraft next. I did not want to go in, but Kraft drew his revolver and said, come on, and I did so. They took the axe and the crowbar in the house with them. We passed through the front room to the second room, middle room, where the girls and Robbie were asleep. Kraft and Neil went to the bed where the girls were. Kraft took hold of Franny Gibbons and Neil of Emma. And then he goes into some brutal detail that I'm just going to skip over. Basically, he's discussing the murders and then discussing the fact that they started the fire. And then he says, when we got out, we separated. I going home. I don't know where they went. I got home about half past three o'clock and my wife made me breakfast. I laid down but did not go to sleep. I heard the cry of fire about half past five when I was at breakfast. I went to the burning house but did not stay long. On the following Sunday morning, when Kraft and I met at the place where the house was burned and Kraft asked me to take a walk, we went out towards the cemetery. He began to talk about the affair and said it must be kept quiet. We met Neil and we all talked about it. They wanted me to sign a pledge never to tell about it. I told them I would think about it. They told me I better do better than that. And if I did not do so by the next Saturday night, they would put an end to me. We separated, I went home, and Kraft and Neil went away together. Melena, what are your thoughts about his testimony? To me, it seems weird that when he was together in a cell with the other two, he tried to recant his previous statement, but after having some time away from them and being by himself and then coming to this, he suddenly is back to his original statement And he is adding even more detail that was not originally discussed in the first confession that he had. I think he just decided that now maybe he felt safe because everybody was in custody and they'd been separated. And so he felt like he could say that. The defense team for William Neal was headed by Thomas R. Brown, which was actually the son of the judge that was in this trial. And the defense's key witness was George Ellis's wife. And she testified that on the night of the murders, she woke up at midnight and 4.30 a.m. and her husband was there both times. She said that she did not believe that her husband had left the house that night. While William Neal was being held in jail, his wife had visited him. And people thought that this was normal, but some people said that they had heard her pleading with George to tell the quote-unquote real truth. Another witness they brought to the stand for the defense was Oliver Hampton. And he testified that George Ellis had said in front of him and another man that William Neal and Ellis Craft were innocent, which would be a huge flaw in George's statement. The defense also called several character witnesses that testified that William Neal was a good man. However, on February 6th, 1882, the jury only deliberated for 17 minutes and ended up finding William Neal guilty. And he was sentenced to hang on February 14th, 1882. 
A few days later, George Kraft was convicted and sentenced to hang on the same day. That is all for part one. Come back next Thursday for even more twists and turns on this episode of The Ashland Tragedy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.